we're going to continue in our worship through the preaching of God's word. And so I want to read for us our passage. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter two. It'll also be on the screens as well. And we'll be reading verses one through 12. So beginning in Matthew chapter two, verse one, it says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the, the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented with him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. If you will bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you so, so much for the gift of your word. And Lord, we thank you that in your word, you point us to the gift of Jesus. That while we were sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us, to rise from the grave, to conquer sin and death, and that your word testifies this from the beginning to the end. And so Lord, we pray for Pastor Kevin that uh, as he faithfully proclaims your word that you give him clarity of mind. And Lord, we pray for ourselves that as we open up your word and study your word that your spirit would bring it to light and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts ready to be molded and shaped and conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan, um, so much. And thank you for being here in worship today. So I will uh, confess to you that 25 years ago, I became a fan of the television show Seinfeld. I understand some of you are judging me right now because that show can be a little bit edgy. Uh, we have vid angels, so I'm able to filter out you know, all the language and other parts. Um, I realize others of you, that... Uh, revelation of my watching Seinfeld dates me. I get that. I was talking to a pastor friend recently who's in his 30s. I made a Seinfeld reference. He did not get it. And he said, look, you need to understand I'm more in the office generation. Okay, fine. Fair enough. So for all of you millennials who don't understand the show, uh, there is one particularly notable episode where George, who is one of the main characters, reveals that his family does not celebrate Christmas. Instead, they celebrate a holiday his father invented called Festivus. And then throughout the 
episode, these various characteristics of this invented holiday are revealed. For example, they do not celebrate on December 25th, rather it's on December 23rd when they celebrate Festivus. Instead of a Christmas tree, there is an aluminum pole. Uh, One of the features of Festivus is at the Festivus dinner, there is the airing of grievances where you go around and you share with all the family members the various ways they have disappointed you over the last year. Um, Festivus ends with the feats of strength where family members wrestle one another and once someone is pinned, Festivus is over. Now again, this is an invented holiday, a made-up holiday by the writers of a sitcom. However, you can go online And you can search how to appropriately celebrate Festivus. And there are lots and lots of resources, which tells me that a lot of people around our country on December 23rd get together and they celebrate Festivus. Now, my favorite part of the episode, even though I've never celebrated Festivus, my favorite part of this episode is when George George's father reveals how he got the revelation for this holiday. In a conversation with a uh, guy named Kramer, who is another character on the show, uh, George's father talks about this defining moment in his life. Here's what he said. Many Christmases ago, I went to buy a doll for my son. I reached for the last one they had. So did another man. As I rain blows upon him, I realized there had to be another way. And then out of that experience, he invented this holiday called Festivus. I love this line, especially, there had to be another way. I wish the writers of the show had said instead, there had to be a better way because that would have fit better with my sermon for this morning. So I think a lot of times in life, we get to that point where we say, there has to be a better way. In fact, virtually every adult I know who comes into a relationship with Christ, that event begins with them saying, you know, life isn't going the way that I thought it would. Life isn't going the way I think it should go. There has to be a better way. Years ago when I was serving at a church in North Georgia, there was a college student in the church who asked to meet with me. His family was involved in the church. He went to college in another town. We really didn't know each other. But it was Thanksgiving break or Christmas break. And he said, hey, can we get together? And we sat down and over lunch, he told me about his life, about the college life that he was living and about all of the parties and all the different things that were going on. And at some point in the conversation, he basically said to me, you know what? I'm just not happy. It wasn't that there was some breakup in his life or some tragic event. He just looked around at this college life that he was living that was very typical where he went to school and he looked at it and said, meh, this isn't it. And although he didn't say these words exactly, what he was saying to me was this, there has to be a better way. A while back, I met with a guy who if you looked up in the dictionary the term American dream, his picture would be there. Very successful, big house, nice cars, family, everybody was healthy. I mean, everything in his life from the outside seemed to be going well, and yet he had this conversation with me where he said, I'm just not 
happy. It wasn't anything was wrong. It wasn't that anything uh, tragic had happened in his life. It's just that he was approaching 50 years old. He realized he had more years behind him than he did ahead of him. And he looked around in his life and said, is this really all there is? And again, he did not use these words, but what he was saying to me was this. There has to be a better way. This happens so often in life. When someone says, you know, life just isn't going the way that I thought they would, it would go. And they get to the point that they say there has to be a better way. Very often when that happens, when that experience happens, the person who makes that statement comes to realize that the better way is also called the way, the truth, and the life. This morning we're going to look uh, at a story of some individuals who realized that there had to be a better way. This story is familiar to most of you in here, especially if you grew up in church. Even if you've only been in church for a couple of years, you've likely heard the story of these men that we call the wise men. Uh, you've heard the passage that Ryan read earlier from Matthew chapter 2. Matthew begins his story of Jesus by describing the birth of Jesus and the events leading up to that birth. And then quickly in Matthew 2, he turns to the events right after the birth of Jesus. Let's look back at verse 1 in the passage that Ryan read. Here's what Matthew wrote. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So Matthew, at the beginning of this passage, introduces us to two different individuals. The first is King Herod. When the original readers of Matthew's gospel read this part of the text, they needed no introduction to King Herod. In fact, Matthew gives no other explanation because all of those who read this story knew all about King Herod. He was famous in that region. He was placed in power over that region by the Roman Empire. The Romans had conquered this land about 60 years before Jesus was born. And Herod was born in Israel, but he was raised in Rome and he had endeared himself to those in power in Rome. He was a very shrewd politician. He was very, very smart. He, uh, on paper, this area was ruled by Rome, but practically speaking, it was ruled by Herod. And Herod was most remembered for being absolutely insane with power and paranoid about losing that power. So paranoid, in fact, that he would put to death anyone around him who he believed had the opportunity to, put, to betray him, including many of his own family members. Uh, part of his paranoia was caused by the fact that Herod had 10 wives, and these wives had, get, had given him children, and he believed, and perhaps he was right, that several of these sons of his from these different wives were trying to put him to death so that they could get power sooner rather than later. 
Um, he put three of his sons to death because he suspected that they were trying to kill him, which led Caesar Augustus to make the statement, it is safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Meaning Herod was a Jew, he would not eat pork, so his pigs were safe, but his sons were not. He also put to death his favorite wife because he suspected that she was trying to poison him. And then, ironically, he was overcome with grief because he missed her so much. He was just that insane with power. In fact, he was so incredibly insecure and paranoid that when he knew he was dying, he issued this decree that all of these prominent families in Jerusalem were to be brought into the Hippodrome in Jerusalem. It was a sports arena where they mainly watched chariot races. These prominent families, dozens and dozens, were to be brought into the Hippodrome on the day that he died, and those families were to be put to death so that he would know that there was mourning and wailing throughout Jerusalem on the day that he died. Now, fortunately, that order wasn't carried out because Herod was dead. What's he going to do about it? They did not put those people to death. Herod was such a famous figure in that region that when Matthew wrote these words, that Herod was disturbed and all in Jerusalem were disturbed along with him, that statement needed no explanation. Everyone got it. They read that line, Herod was disturbed, and they understood why everyone else was disturbed as well. You did not want a madman with that much power getting disturbed. When Herod got disturbed, heads started to roll. It was completely understandable why when Herod is disturbed, everyone around him ducks for cover and they're disturbed as well. So the first character that we meet is Herod. The second character is really not one character, but it's a group of characters that we commonly call the wise men. And that's a pretty good title. It's really not far off, even though that's not the title that Matthew gave them. They were very well read. They were the most learned men around. Um, they had expertise in science and math and agriculture and history. These guys were very studious. Matthew actually calls them magi. And magi is a, is a name that is derived from the same word that we use for the word magic. These guys were very superstitious. They were into superstition, astrology, um, spells, everything that has to do with the word, uh, world of magic. These guys were into that. Now, church tradition tells us that there were three of them. We don't really know if there were three. Matthew never says three. We base that off the fact that they brought three gifts to Jesus. But there could have been two, there could have been 20. We're just not really sure, even though three is a pretty good guess based on those gifts. Um, according to Matthew's account, these individuals, these wise men, spotted this unusual star in the sky. It would have been to the west of where they were located. And next week we'll talk about why they believed this star was so significant and why they believed they needed to pursue this star, why they thought it would make a difference in their lives, why they believed it was more than just some astronomical anomaly. But for now, here's what we need to understand. For these guys, this star meant that they would make a super long journey. 
Now, for them, it was roughly a thousand miles to get to where uh, this child was to be born. A thousand miles in that day. If you tell me right now that I have to drive a thousand miles, I'm going to groan. If you tell me that I have to get into a car with air conditioning and cruise control and satellite radio, and I've got to go a thousand miles on roads that are smooth with asphalt, you tell me I've got to drive a thousand miles, I'm going to figure out a way to wiggle out of that. It, it does not sound pleasant to me. I really don't want to do a thousand mile journey. These guys traveled a thousand miles on the backs of smelly camels, camels that did not have shock absorbers or air conditioning or satellite radio across a rocky terrain. Uh, it was a journey that would take them about six months to complete, meaning they were spending the night under the stars on rough ground, no pillow. Why would they make this journey? Why in the world would these guys do something to take them out of their homeland, away from their families, away from everything that was familiar to them? Why would they make such incredible personal sacrifices just to follow this star? As I mentioned earlier, we call them wise men and that is with a, uh, for a good reason. These guys were extremely learned. They read all the books and, not books, but scrolls that were out there that had to do with ancient philosophies and religions and ideas. In a day and age when most of the population was illiterate, these guys were both well-read and very learned. They had a deep and broad knowledge of every idea that was out there. Everything that, that was written about how to achieve peace and happiness, and fulfillment, and salvation, they had spent their entire adult lives reading these scrolls and studying these different philosophies and searching for answers. Yet nothing they read quite did it. Nothing they studied filled that void in their lives. These guys had access to every philosophy, every idea, every religious system that was available to them and they said, you know what? There has to be a better way. There has to be a better way than what we have read. Every one of us in this room either have a story of getting to that point where we say there's got to be a better way or hopefully will have that story of getting to the point where we say there has to be a better way. And maybe right now you're on that journey where you've realized there has to be a better way. And right now it's the beginning of your journey towards Jesus. If that is the case, let me give you four principles about this path that you're on. The first is this. The first principle is everyone has a need for God. If you've got your bulletin with you, this is on the back if you want to take notes. Everyone has a need for God. I've heard it said that there is a God-shaped hole in every heart. That is not a quote from the Bible, but the concept is definitely there. In the book of Ecclesiastes, here's what we read. He, talking about God, has also set eternity in the human heart. Meaning every person has built within their DNA a desire for God. Everyone is born with this void in their heart 
that can only be filled by God. The problem is we try to fill that void with other things. We take that void that only God can fill and we try to stuff into that void these other things in life. And commonly, one of the things we try to stuff in uh, are romantic relationships because that seems like it'll work. And that's what the world tells us, right? Every song, every love song you hear on the radio, every Hollywood movie says that if you just, if you just meet the right person and you fall in love with that person and that person falls in love with you and you guys get together, you will live happily ever after. So the key to happiness, the key to fulfillment in life is to meet the right person and that'll do it. And then one day that right person disappoints you. The marriage isn't quite as exciting as it was. The honeymoon stage is over. Oh no, what do you do then? You find yourself looking around going, there's got to be a better way. There has to be something else. Another way that we try to fill it is with money. Not really money itself. It's the stuff that money buys that we try to fill that void in our lives with. So if we can get enough money to get the stuff that we really want, then maybe we'll be happy. And so we get the new thing, the new car, the new house, the bigger house. We try to get all these new things and we say, maybe this is it, maybe this is it. And then one day the newness wears off, the shininess wears off. We get bored with all the toys and we find ourselves looking around going, there has to be a better way. Another way that we try to do it is through community and friends, which certainly fills a lot of needs in our lives, and yet we know that friends will disappoint. The community, uh, our community of friends will at times disappoint us. And so we find ourselves looking around going, has to be another way. Another way that we try to do it is through our career or hobbies or sports. If I can just be successful enough, if I can just win enough, if I can achieve enough, if I can, if I can get enough awards, if I can do all of these things, then it will fill this void in my life. And then one day we wake up and We've retired or we wake up and we don't have the athletic ability that we used to have and someone has beat us. Someone has achieved more than us. And we look around and we say, you know, there has to be a better way. Here's the first principle you need to understand. Every one of us have this God-shaped hole in our heart that is a void that only God can fill. And even though we try, nothing else will fill it. Here's principle number two. Frustration with this life often seeks, often leads to seeking true life. When we get frustrated trying to fill our, our hearts with these other things, often when we get to that point of saying that has to, there has to be a better way, that leads us to seeking true life. Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes that we read from earlier was written by King Solomon. Now, if you grew up in church, you understand the significance of the fact that this book was written by King Solomon. King Solomon was super, super rich. Not just kind of rich, not just mega rich, but like ultra crazy Jeff Bezos kind of rich. Even beyond that, I mean, wealth beyond what we can imagine. As well, he had access to virtually any woman in his kingdom anytime he wanted to be with one of these women. He was brilliant, had all sorts of projects that he had done. He had all the creature comforts of life, the best foods, the finest wines around. 
entertainment, anything that he wanted. He had the best seats, the best sporting events, anything that he wanted, he had. And yet, at this certain point in his life, he hit this wall. And he looked around at at his life and said, this isn't it. It's not doing it for me. There has to be a better way. And he recorded his thoughts in a journal. We call that journal the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want you to notice how he began his journal. Notice the first entry in his journal. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound to me like a man who is happy and enjoying his life. He sounds pretty miserable. Even though he had absolutely everything that this world could give to him. He lacked nothing. He literally had every creature comfort of life. And yet he got to this point that he looked around and said, there has to be a better way. This is so common in life. I know very few adults who do not get to this point in life where they look around and say, there has to be a better way. Sometimes it happens when individuals hit rock bottom. You know, they lose a job and they look around and say, there's gotta be something else in life. Or their marriage falls apart and they look around and say, there's gotta be something else in life. Or they struggle with some kind of addiction, some sort of substance abuse. And they hit the bottom of the well and they look up and they say, there's got to be something else in life. Sometimes that's the way it happens, but that's not always the case. Sometimes a lot like Solomon, you get everything you want in life and you still find this place of looking around going, this isn't it. I mean, you have the the perfect family, the big house with the white picket fence, the new car, the career, And you wake up one day and go, ha, Sinet, there's got to be more to life than this. Years ago, I I heard a sermon by Tim Keller where he he talks about this, this pivotal moment in life where you wake up one day and you go, there's got to be more. There's got to be more than this. All of these things in life that I've been pursuing, they're just not doing it. There has to be more to life. And so there's basically three reactions that we have to this aha kind of moment. The first reaction is to say, you know, this stuff that I've been pursuing, that's the answer. I just haven't gotten the right thing yet. And so you try to get the bigger house with the whiter picket fence. You know, the marriage isn't doing it, so you get a new marriage. You know, the, the, the career isn't doing it, so you get a new job. You know, the car, the car isn't it, so you get the new car. You just keep pursuing those things and you try and you try and you try and you think, maybe something this world has to offer is it. I just haven't found that something yet. The problem with that particular path is King Solomon had it all. And yet he got to the point that he said, this isn't it. None of us in here are going to have as much money as Solomon had. None of us are going to have access to all the luxuries and all the creature comforts that King Solomon had in his day. Yet we think sometimes if we just keep pursuing and keep pursuing, keep pursuing, that this will bring us fulfillment. Option one is you just keep going after those things. Option two 
is to look around at life and go, well, this is just it. Life stinks. The sooner you come to understand that this is just life, the better off you'll be. It's just the way it is. Life will disappoint you. The kids will disobey you. The the wife, the husband will disappoint you. The new car is going to break down. The house is going to give you all kinds of headaches. It's just life. Get used to it. This is the grumpy old man slash Debbie Downer approach to life. People love being around you. I mean, you just, you walk into a room and there's the black cloud of pessimism just following you in. This is the, the cynic's view of life. Life just stinks. Get used to it. By the way, this is where King Solomon landed. You read through Ecclesiastes and he gets to the end of the book and says, this is just life. Life just has no meaning. And the faster you come to terms with that, the better off you'll be. So the first approach is you just, you just keep pursuing different things in life and you, you try to get as much as you can. The second approach is just the grumpy old man approach. Life just stinks. The third approach, when you reach this, there has to be a better way in life. The third reaction is to say, you know what? There is a better way, but it's not found in what this world has to offer. And to get this better way, I might have to make a thousand mile journey or I might have to drive 10 minutes to church. But whatever it takes, I am going to pursue this better way (laughs) because it is the only way to happiness in life. So principle number one, we all have this God-shaped hole in our life that we try to fill with other things. Principle number two, we try to fill it with other things And it disappoints us. It leaves us less than fulfilled. That often causes us to look towards Jesus. Principle number three is this. All who seek Jesus will find him. All who seek will find him. Jeremiah chapter 29. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came, God said these words. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. All these years before Jesus appeared, God said through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel, you need to understand, when you seek after me, you will find me. I'm not gonna play some game with you where I'll try to make you figure out how to find me. I'm not gonna do this thing where you have to jump through hoops or complete all these different rituals in life you know, some sort of religious ceremony. I'm not going to make you be good for a year before you can find me. When you seek me, you will find me. When your heart's desire is for me, then you will most definitely find me. When Jesus walked on this earth, he, he reiterated the same thing when he said this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So often this, this verse is used to justify this belief that if we just ask God for something, he'll give it to us, like material possessions. So people say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to win the mega millions lottery. How? Jesus said, ask and it'll be given to you. Yeah, God, I'm asking you to let me win the mega millions lottery. I think a lot of people have prayed that. Not a lot of people have won. Jesus didn't mean you can ask for any material blessing that you want and it will be given to you. Notice the context of that statement. Ask and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. What Jesus was referring to here was a relationship with God. When you ask for salvation, it will be given to you. When you ask God to forgive you, you will receive that forgiveness. When you seek him, you will find him. When you knock, the door will be open to you. You will be welcomed with zero preconditions. You do not have to clean yourself up before you come to Christ. You do not have to figure out how to play the right game to come into a relationship with God. It's not getting exactly the right key to unlock the door and only then will it be open to you. All you have to do is ask. So principle number one, all of us have this void in our life where we need God and we try to fill it with other things. Number two, we try to fill it with other things and it leaves us disappointed. Number three, when we seek to fill it with God, we will find him without question. And then principle number four is this, all who find him will be satisfied. In other words, you will not get to the end of your rope and then reach out for God and, th- and get this relationship with him through Christ and then go, well, that wasn't it. That's not what I was looking for. That hasn't satisfied my heart. Maybe it's something else. There's this longing that's still there. The promise is, is that when you come to Christ, you will be filled. Let me jump ahead in the story for just a minute. We're going to talk about this more on the last week. In the passage that Ryan read earlier, these wise men pursue this star. They eventually arrive in Bethlehem. They go to the place where Jesus was born. And look at what we read in verse 10. When they saw the star... They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Matthew doesn't say they pursued this star. They made this thousand mile journey. They arrive in Bethlehem and there's Jesus and they go, well, this wasn't it. This wasn't what we were looking for. This this doesn't do it. It says they were overjoyed. This was it. This was what they were searching for. This was the better way that caused them to leave where they were a thousand miles away and run after Jesus. Listen to me. If you're a follower, uh, if, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're here and you don't know Christ and you're perfectly happy with your life, then here's my advice to you. You just keep doing you. I don't ever try to convince someone that they need to follow Christ if they don't think they need Christ. If you're happy with life, if you're content, if everything's going your way, then you just keep on that path. But if you've gotten to the point that you said, you know, there's got to be a better way. This isn't it. It's not doing it for me. My life is not what I want it to be. Then maybe, perhaps... You're on the seeker's journey. And maybe this is the beginning of your coming to Jesus. I hope this Christmas, that's exactly what happens in your life. 